Welcome everyone to the Persist podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with actually my colleague from my other job, Redland City Council member, Jenna Guzman-Lowry. Welcome, Jenna. Hello, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So thanks for saying yes to this interview. And before we get started jumping into the questions, I have to say, first of all, congratulations on your recent graduation. You graduated yesterday. How are you feeling today, one day, one day later? Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, hasn't hit me yet. I definitely don't feel graduated. I submitted my final project that I have to work on like last night at 10 PM. So I don't think it will hit me until I start realizing that I don't have class to go to or like assignments to submit. And to be quite honest, like with everything that we're working on in the city, like it's never ending. You just, you just find a new, a new thing to fill your bucket. So hopefully I'll feel that like celebratory milestone moment, but it hasn't hit me yet. That is totally understandable. Tell everyone, what did you get your degree in? I I got my degree in clinical mental health counseling. That's fantastic. And as we've talked about many times, this translates so well into the city council arena. I'm curious to know, what was your path into politics? Tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up on the Redland City Council. Well, I've always been pretty active. I haven't, I've had what my family and friends refer to as a strong opinion base. I'm very, very much an advocate in terms of the things that I believe in and that I stand for. And so my personal life, I've always been very active in campaigning or doing phone banks or just having some sort of hand in the pot somewhere to make a difference in some capacity, whether it's even just like super local, like ASB in high school or changes that need to be made when I was at the YMCA. Like, why why is this this way? Can we make it this way? And so in terms of like the like the personal is political, I, I feel like I've always sort of existed in a way that I wanted to disrupt things or or make a difference when I felt like things weren't happening the way I wanted them to. But uh, in terms of like, why, how do you like, what makes you want to join that system? Because I will be honest, I've critiqued it for many, many years. And I've, I've, I've had a lot of opinions about the ways in which I see structure and the two party system and capitalism. And I've got a lot of opinions, as you know, Denise. Yes. But I think that the the year, specifically 2020, really highlighted all of these fragments that were already existing, that were already under the surface. And I think when everyone else began to see that infrastructure crumbling, those of us who kind of already knew like, yeah, this is the nature of this system, or this is kind of the design of it. Uh, I think I had like a, at the beginning, sort of like a jaded perspective on that. Like, duh, what did you guys think was happening? What did you think was happening around here? But it was a very specific moment of, of the energy of 2020, especially after the murdering of, of George Floyd and the way that people hit the streets and said, like, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to, we're going to raise our voice. We're going to make a difference. We're going to speak until someone hears us. It really pushed me to say, okay, in what ways can I make a difference? Can I, you know, put myself in a position to advocate for community members, people in my communities, in my neighborhoods, and try to make some sort of advancement or progress in the ways that we are meeting people's needs or we're not meeting them right now. And so how can, what does that look like to change it? And so the short story is, I just wanted to put my money where my mouth was. (laughs) 
<laughs> I I love that so much. And I think that a lot of a lot of what you just said is going to really resonate with the people listening to this podcast, because I think there are, are a lot of us who are skeptical of the system and whether or not you can actually make change from inside the system. But I'm just I'm really grateful that you had that change of heart in 2020 and that that was a turning point moment for you and that you decided to put your name on the ballot uh, and did so in such an incredible way. You were by far, I think, the underdog in the race, which we can talk about. You ran an amazing grassroots campaign, you know, and, and you're an example of someone who brilliantly executed a low budget grassroots campaign and you won. Tell us uh, how you did that and what you learned from that experience. So I'm going to be completely real with you. I have no idea. Like that is the realness and the rawness of, I think the message behind like why people voted for, I want to say, I don't want to say me, but for us, like the people who were out there knocking on doors, like representing the campaign, it, it there's nothing gimmicky about it. Like it was legitimately me and my best friend in my garage, who also was a, has a background in PR, who I didn't even ask. We just kind of assumed. I was like, can you do the like PR for this? Like, let's do a fun summer project. Because as you remember, Denise, I pulled papers like right before the deadline. So the campaign was like end of July, beginning of August to beginning of November. It was a sprint. Mm-hmm. It was straight up like pass the torch, go, who do we know? Call this person. And it, I think what it, what it speaks to is that like, it was truly an organic grassroots movement. It wasn't like there was no strategy or campaigning to the, to the sense of like, how do we appear to be grassroots or what do we do to like reach all these people? Like other than Ash having like a really extensive knowledge in, in messaging and communication and just generally being very good and charming in that role. I think people saw, we didn't have any like spectacle. There's no performance. I don't wear suits. You know what I mean? Like when we knocked on doors, we were real people asking about real issues, connecting in, in raw, genuine ways. And when people wanted to talk, we listened. We weren't like, okay, well, we have to get to the next house. We just, we really prioritized and emphasized the value of relationship building and the rest of it kind of just fell into place. Like even with like who we ended up using for printing or mugs or stickers or just all of those things. Our designer is one of my childhood best friend's wives. And so the two of them like put together, they were like, what do you think of this? And they're like, it's on, it's on the house. Just like go use it and go make a difference in the world. So I think what it was, is it was just like this genuine collection of people who realized that like when you put your energy together, when you put like your heads together, you're going to make a bigger impact. And in a way, it kind of paralleled and mirrored ways that I see mutual aid being really beneficial because it wasn't about any entity having a say in what we were doing. We didn't get any endorsements. We weren't, we didn't have to like answer to anyone's messaging about what, who we were and what we were representing. We just were like, I care about people. I care about small business. I care about revitalizing our communities. Like I care about marginalized populations and that's just truly who we were. And so just, just was, you know what I mean? Like we didn't have to try. We just were like, who we are, vote if you want to, if you, if not, that's cool too. Absolutely. And and from what I recall, you know, you ran against several people, but you were you were out there and working the hardest, I will say, and you were most visible. And yes, you were out there talking to people and not rushing from house to house. You were really out there listening and being authentic. But I think it was noticeable, right? The work ethic that you and your team put in. And I think that that's important to highlight as well. And also the unusual timeline, right? Most campaigns are much longer than yours. So do you want to talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to yours being such a short campaign? 
Yeah. So basically the district that I live in um, had, I believe, uh, a council member who was an incumbent. And so I didn't even know that we like that there was going to be I didn't I didn't know anything. I'm going to be completely honest. I was not aware of like what district I lived in, what that meant. I was very removed in terms of the structure of local politics. I knew I had like attended city council meetings. I cared about initiatives. I was very involved in like the the more specific things, right? Like Measure G or Smart Growth or like how does this small business interact with city politics? Like those kind of things I knew. I had no idea about the districts or like who, how those are represented. But a good friend of mine texted me a picture of a map and she was like, do you know anyone that lives here in this map area? And I was like, I do. I live right there. And she was like, bro. And then so she sent me all these texts about like links to community news articles about how the current council member was going to be leaving, but there's like sort of this other person that is being recommended. And she was like, you, you have to do this. Like you have to explore this, this idea. Like, I, I think you should try this because most people who follow me on Instagram can see how vocal I am about my opinions on things. And I just had an influx of people being like, are you aware that this seat is becoming open? Like, are you going to do this? And I'm like, well, I- I'm in grad school. Like I can't be doing this. Like, but then, like I said, one thing led to another of this idea of, well, maybe I could make a difference. Like maybe this is like, where, where, like what's meant to be. And uh, yeah, we just explored it and, and went with it. And we were like, let's, let's do it. And then we noticed that there were three other people who were also pulling papers and were going to run also in that short time span. So I don't really know what came first, the chicken or the egg, like who, who set the precedent for like making other people want to run for that seat. But I know that someone in particular was kind of like placed as like, this person's going to run for this. And you're just like, the world was just expected to like go with it. And I think I was like, I'm no, thank you. I won't be taking that. And then I was like, I'll try it myself. I love it. I love how it all came together so beautifully and organically in such a short time period. And uh, it was great that you answered the call right away when, you know, when your friends said, here, here's an open seat. And I think that it's often hard for women, you know, the data out there talks about how women have to be asked several times before they'll consider running for office. And so it, it was exciting to me that you were asked once and you said, yeah, I'll do it. And you stepped up and you ran an amazing campaign. And now you're on the city council, which is amazing. And I'm so grateful to have you as a colleague. Not only are you a great colleague, but you're also a great gift giver and a great friend. And one of my favorite gifts that I've received during this pandemic was actually from you. In addition to a wonderful Kamala Harris calendar that I'm currently looking at on my wall, you gave me a mug with a Stacey Abrams quote that resonates for me. And I know for you as well, the quote is, like most who are underestimated, I have learned to overperform. What does that quote mean to you? Well, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of like this idea that to like when you exist in a marginalized space, whether that be race, gender, disability, lower socioeconomic status, like these like sort of like marginalized and impacted like spaces that we occupy in the social landscape, you have to work like twice as hard just to be seen. And so I think that there's kind of um, a standard in which whether you want to call it like ethnocentrism, Eurocentrism, the dominant narrative that our culture subscribes to, but there's this sort of baseline of like white male mediocrity that is kind of the expectation for how people are supposed to show up and do their work. And if you don't fit into this little box of whatever the dominant narrative is, you have to exhaust yourself trying to mold yourself in a way that you can fit in this like sort of pre-created form so that people 
can, you know, digest you or, or swallow you. So for me, that quote is kind of this idea that like, when you're already on the fringes, like you, you're already lacking the support and the resources that some people are born with, and, or maybe not even born with, but just sort of like is a part of the package of how they show up in that dominant narrative of the US. And like a, an example of that, that's not just about race, right? Is that like in like heteronormativity, like there's an expectation for how you're supposed to show up in relationships. And that's reflected in interview questions that you get, right? When people are like, let, let me ask, what's your husband? been like? Do you have kids? Like there's a sort of, and when you don't fit into it, it's exhausting to have to explain yourself or, or present yourself in a way that can make sense to people who don't understand you. And I think how that shows up in like the political sector or, you know, people who have, who grow up biculturally or experience like things other than white U.S. culture is you, you have to just kick ass to be able to be seen for someone to say, oh, you should be doing this thing. I've experienced that multiple times in my life in which I feel like I've had an idea or I've worked my butt off on a project only for someone to say like, oh, not now. And then a year or two later, I see a similar thing being done by a different type of person. I'm trying to be gentle and careful in the way that I deliver this. I don't know what your audience faces, but I'm also trying to be real. This is who I am. No, I, we appreciate the realness and I suspect the audience base as much like you. So thank you. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah, so much of that. I, t- I feel like I go on like a thousand tangents, so it, it's possible I may never actually answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you provoked a lot of thought with that response, especially around this idea of representation, right? And who's at the table. We were just talking about Vice President Kamala Harris, and you know, it's an, impossible to think about her election and not think about the barriers, you know, for women and women of color and that and that barrier of the vice presidency finally being broken in the United States. But wow, it's taken a long time. And in a lot of ways, like your election to the Redland City Council feels similar to me. So I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts on the importance of representation at the local level. Yeah. And I think it's it's hard because Representation is absolutely important. I think that decisions that are made like have to be influenced by people who've lived the experience. So I, but I also want to have just a, one caveat is I don't think that representation equals equity because mm-hmm. it's very obvious. We're very aware of the fact that like you can be an uh, occupant of a marginalized identity, whether you identify as LGBTQ, if you're black, if you're a Latina, if you're a Latino, if you are, you know, if you, whatever your identity is in which you, there is like an experience that's different from the norm doesn't automatically make you think about things in an equitable way. Mm-hmm. So I want to just re- reiterate that, like, ju- like you, just because things are diverse doesn't mean that they're better, but it is important to have the perspective of differing identities, especially intersectional ones. And I think something that is always missed when we talk about representation is the representation of the class struggle. Mm-hmm. I think, I think like what I identify with more in terms of the struggle to be in the position that I am, I'm in is that I grew up in an extremely economically impacted environment in which I like, this never seemed like the life that I would be able to live. And those are the, I think those are the perspectives that are like critical. It's urgent that we have them paired with the intersectional identities of the female perspective, the black perspective, the LGBTQ perspective, et cetera, et cetera. 
etc cetera, etc cetera, because those like the lived experience of being in those bodies like through this like you know late stage capitalist environment that we're in is going to be it's going to offer a completely different idea for what survival and thriving is supposed to look like you know and even just when you talk about it in terms of like ableist politics like if you don't live in a wheelchair or if you don't live in a way that your physical body is different than like the way the structure of the world has been built like you're never going to know the the frustrations or the barriers that stairs provide someone or like create for someone mm-hmm. like my mom having cerebral palsy like is constantly thinking in her mind when i go to the olive market like what time of day is it is there going to be a line like where will i sit how will i stand what what's the parking situation like because she has such an impacted experience when it comes to getting into the building that she's like thinking about all of the different ways like how can i make this most feasible right whereas missy and sonia who own the olive market are dope and amazing and they're like well no let's just figure out ways to make it more accessible and like let's create that environment so that it's not stressful for you and that's like a tiny example i think Mm -hmm. of the ways in which like having a seat at the table with a differing perspective has just completely changed the way the conversation is going with the what's the language that's being used how are we even envisioning this Absolutely. Well said. I knew you'd have a great answer to that question. Um, that all makes so much sense. And, and talking about, you know, having a seat at the table, uh, now that you're at the table, the Redland City Council, what are some of the issues that you're most passionate about and eager to address? And I think forever and always, the having a mental health background, I'm eager to address the, the ways in which the city responds to the needs of the unhoused. Because I think for a long time, there's been a conversation or a narrative that's been pushed that mental health is the problem. And that's the reason people are, are without housing. That if we just got them the treatment they needed, like if they could just get off drugs and just like, we need more therapists. Like it's always thrown on us. Like mm-hmm. there's like a campaign or there's like, like, you know, an, an outbreak in something in, in a population of people without housing. It's like, well, what we need is more therapists. And it's like, yeah, but then you guys don't want to pay us either. But uh, that's not the problem. The problem is that people need structure. People need like their fundamental human needs have to be met. There needs to be housing. There has to be healthcare, right? All of these things that may be more of a national level issue, but there are ways in the local level to become a model city to incorporate how do you how do you build structures or like invest in long-term social dividends of the ways that you change how you relate to people who are in need. Mm-hmm. I know what that looks like tangibly right now. Like I, I, I couldn't tell you like what a policy or a structural difference looks like, but that's where I want to throw my energy is building relationships with people in all areas of service providers, uh, people experiencing houselessness and, and get to the, to the, the core of like, what is, what is it that's needed? And what are we missing? And it's hard because we're all kind of operating inside of a really like specific structure that doesn't, that is designed to like spit people out who can't produce. You almost have to like create a new model for like, what does it look like to help people? It's not like, you know, oh, they're no longer of use. Let's get rid of them. Like, you know, I've heard some pretty destructive and awful things. I totally agree. And I think you're right. The mindset needs to shift and we need a new model. And yeah, this is the most pressing issue for most communities across the nation. And yeah, with especially with your background and your training, your insight provides so much, you know, for a policy to be developed. 
So that's another reason why it's important to have your voice at the table, right? So I'm, I'm excited to see where you go with this in particular. Are there any other issues that you're excited about pursuing at this point? I know you just got elected, so it's, it's a bit early in your term. I mean, there's just, there's just so much that I care about and that I want to do. I, I'm, I'm very passionate about smart growth in ways that you can weave it into affordable housing. I, I love, I mean, there are so many, there's so many cool things that we've seen um, publicly, right? With like projects that could be possible, but sometimes even those being as like nifty and, and cool as they are, are still missing a core piece, which is like, who is going to get to participate in that? And I'm interested in always asking critical questions. And I think what I think there's not a specific topic that I, I am drawn to at the moment other than the unhoused and how do we how do we help? Mm-hmm. Also just in general, like being critical about everything that comes across in, in front of me. Like I'm gonna ask critical questions, I wanna know everything about it. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see a restructuring even in the ways that we respond to crisis in our in our communities. That I don't think that law enforcement should be involved in very specific crisis issues. Like you cannot police homelessness, you can't police you. Like those are not, those are not things that law plays into. Like law is like this sort of created idea. It's this abstract concept built to create control over something that is quite literally out of control. When you're talking about like chronic mental illness, the lack of housing and security, like it it just doesn't, that literally doesn't make sense even in a logical way. So what are ways that like a city can restructure what a crisis response looks like? Yes. You can't police domestic violence either. I don't know why we send armed, uniformed officers to help with people who are experiencing high crisis trauma situations. Like that's more aggravating. That's more agitating. So I would say that overall, there's pretty much like what like that mental health thread of like we're we're not we we can't penalize and and be punitive with people when it comes to actually wanting to meet the needs of people. How can we bring that perspective of engagement and like appropriate engagement and like put that everywhere in the ways that we interact with community members? Yeah, all brilliant points. And uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for that. I'm curious to know, what do you now know about politics that you wished you had known before you decided to run for office? I don't know. I don't think I would have wanted to know anything. I like that I just dove headfirst. With, I literally did not know. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I just dove in and I'm like, I'm a fast learner. Let's do it. I think the more that you know about the the way the sausage is made, you don't want to eat the sausage. So like, it's good that I like, it's good that I dove in in the way that I did. This is how I do my best work. Yeah, it is. And it totally works for you. And uh, yeah, you're doing amazing work. And, uh, you know, you've alluded to a lot of this, but I'm curious to know about, you know, as a mental health professional, you are keenly aware of the importance of setting healthy boundaries in so many capacities, right? As you just described from a a potential policy perspective that we could implement. Um, I'm curious to know about for your own self, you know, what are your strategies for prioritizing all that you have on your plate and setting boundaries for yourself? Well, for me, it's just about being real with what my capacity is. And that starts with me being real with myself as like a recovering perfectionist, recovering, overworking, overachiever, you know, all of the ways that I've like learned to cope with my human little, my little human life is first starting with myself. Like what, like what my worth is not defined by how somebody sees me. Like you do not get into politics because you want to be like, like, and if you do, then you're, you're missing something because like the purpose of the role is not to be cared for or celebrated or, you know, put on a pedestal in some capacity, like the, the gritty 
like get your hands dirty work is like what I'm here for. So I think the first step in setting boundaries is recognizing that I'm really not interested in someone's opinion of me unless that feedback is beneficial to doing a better job, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the feedback I'm receiving is going to make like better use of tax dollars or is going to be more appropriate for the role or like the job itself, then I'm welcome to feedback. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like the the ownership that people believe that they have over my time, I have to deeply believe that that's something that I'm responsible for and that I own so that I am able to set a boundary in a way that's not so much like a limitation, like, please don't talk to me. Like I won't, I won't do that, but it's more like an invitation. And so for me, boundaries are very much like, ah, I'd be happy to have that conversation. I can do it at Tuesday from 12 to four or Thursday from A to B. And if those don't work and people are like, oh, that doesn't work for me. And I'm like, all right, well, that's when I can have the conversation. So it's not so much like, um, this is my time. Like I, I, I need you to not bother me right now. It's more like I'm, I signed up for this role. I'm open to this position, but these are the times that I'm able to be in that position. Mm-hmm. And it's really about for me, creating a structure of what I'm, what I'm inviting in, if that makes sense. And that includes like behaviors or attitudes. And so if I've had like an uncomfortable conversation with a colleague or a constituent, like it's, I'm, I try to very gently remind someone that like, I'm not interested in that, what you're sh- sharing right now or what that behavior is. Mm-hmm. What we can do or what I will allow is X, Y, or Z. Like if someone's reprimanding me or talking over me, like I, I just try to be very assertive in a, in a kind way. Cause I mean, the ultimate goal is like connection and collaboration, but I'm, I'm, I'm very assertive in like what I know the moment requires. And that requires me to remind myself of my worth and that like, I'm just as valuable as, you know, the men at the table, as the older people at the table, as the wealthy people at the table. I like, I'm not here to fight or like claw my way into it. I'm just like, let's just be real with each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think that that's great. And I think that what, so much of what you talked about, it takes people, especially women in politics, longer to learn. And it's it's great that you've already entered the political arena with with healthy boundaries and with knowing that, you know, you shouldn't do this job to be liked because that's that's an impossible task, especially as a woman in politics. You know, there's a negative correlation between success and likability, right? And it, it's really hard. There's so many studies about how... Um, you know, just how much more scrutiny women experience in the political arena and how much more harassment, frankly, we experience as well. And so it's it's good to have those clear set boundaries between your personal and your professional life. And I think that you're someone who executes that really well. So thanks for sharing some of your strategies there. Our, um, our final question is one that I love to ask everyone. And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to our listeners, especially college students thinking about running for office or getting involved in the political political arena, what would that be? Find your why. Why do you want to do it? Like if you don't know why you're doing it, don't do it. I think a lot of people get involved in anything, whether it's going back to school, taking a job, a relationship, like people embark on things because they think that they're supposed to, or they think that that is like the only avenue to achieve something. And if you're not in touch with like that core motivation, it's going to feel really scattered and and disconnected from whatever that like that true essence is. And so if you have a why, and it makes sense to do it in this way, do it, go for it. Like, you, you know, you could win, you could lose, whatever. Like the the element of like not being attached to the outcome, but still putting in the effort needed to try, if, you know, if that's what you want. 
But if you don't, again, if you don't have that main piece, there's there, it's not going to, it's not a sustainable energy force unless you absolutely know that this why directly connects to this how. I think Nietzsche has a quote that's literally, uh, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. I love that. Thank you for that. Those are great words to end on. Redland City Council member Jenna Guzman-Lowry, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care. The Persist podcast is hosted by me, Denise Davis, director of the UCR Women's Resource Center, and is produced by Rosa Tejeda and the staff in the UCR Women's Resource Center. Check out our Instagram pages for links to more episodes at UCRWRC and at UCR Persist. If you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, please email us at wrc at ucr.edu. We hope that this podcast inspires you and those around you to get involved in the political arena because we know that who is at the table absolutely matters. Finally, if you have any ideas for who a future guest should be on the podcast, feel free to reach out and let us know.